Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 36 of the Colts WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. Thank you so much for taking the time and the trouble to download us once again. I'm joined as ever. I am, sorry, I'm the Twisted Genius DNA, I should say, and I'm joined as ever by... Sports columnist Liam Hap, good afternoon to you, Liam. Yeah, good afternoon to you. I'm having a good afternoon so far. You know, I'm chilling out, listening to my Craig David CD, drinking a Bacardi Breezer. Uh, hang on, what, what, what do you mean it's not 1999? Hold on a minute, I'm going to have to spit out my bottle of hooch because I'm, <laughs> I'm astounded that it's not 1990. But we are doing this in the afternoon because we have a transatlantic guest, and I'm very pleased to say that we have got returning to us. It's, it's, it happens once a year, and it's magical. It's Merry Quackmas <laughs> Because WCW, Mike Quackenbush. Welcome back to Because WCW. Oh, thank you, guys. It is nice to be back with you. I so enjoyed the last time we were chatting, and I'm delighted to be back to do it again. And, and what have you been up to since we last spoke? Nothing, you know, it's been downhill for my career since that appearance, <laughs> gents. So, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I have stayed quite busy. Uh, among the things that I have been up to, uh, the 25th anniversary of my pro wrestling debut just passed about a month ago, and I've decided to try and wrestle 25 matches in the next year. So we'll see how poorly that goes. But aside from that, I have just launched a brand new project of mine called Till We Make It. Uh, it was inspired in part because in the early days of my career, I did not have a mentor or trainer or coach. And I'm convinced that if I'd had somebody in that role for me in my first few years, I could have accomplished so much more in my career. So in furtherance of that as my new mission, Till We Make It just launched on YouTube earlier this week. A new video comes out every Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. And if you know someone who is new to this journey in professional wrestling, by all means, please send them over to Till We Make It. So that's been keeping me quite busy. Yeah, I saw you, you put one out just a little while ago about entrance music, which has always been a big thing for me. Um, that was really good to listen to. So, and they're, they're short. I mean, that was about seven, seven or eight minutes. So, you know, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not too long either there. For, no, for... I like them to be snack-sized. Yeah, exactly. Listen up, slap nuts. That's right. This is Jeff Jarrett, the chosen one, and you're listening to Because WCW. Now choke on that. Um, and today, um, so Liam, do you want to just uh, introduce what what we're talking about today? This is kind of we're not talking about a pay per view. We're we're talking about a, a kind of a topic here. Yeah, uh, we don't often do this. It's usually a big occasion. The the sad passing of Big Van Vader was uh, something we felt we had to sit down and discuss last summer, and this won't come across as topical in, in the least bit because uh, d delays life, this, that, and the other has, has kind of stopped us from doing this any sooner. But uh, as everyone who listens surely knows, recently 
there was a match in London, not too far from where I live in, in Camden, uh, between two WCW alumni, um, Juventud Guerrero and Silver King, which resulted in the unfortunate passing of Silver King. Uh, and a couple of days after this this news process to Dean and myself, we said we should sit down and talk about the the influence of the Luchadors in WCW. It, it was obviously a big part of what made, especially Nitro, but WCW in general, so different, so caught at that point in the in the shoulders of those of us who were watching when we were younger. Uh, and yeah, so we, we just didn't get the chance to, to do it any sooner but as we were trying to make sure we came through with our promise to make this happen we ended up back in conversation with friend of the podcast mr quackenbush who as most people be aware uh has had his influences from the from the luchador style so we thought who better to come and join us if we're gonna do it late we're gonna do it awesome uh so here we are we're 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 just gonna look back at some of our some of our memories, some of the, 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 the ups and downs, you know what? I don't even really think we've got much of a format. We're just going to wing it. Yeah. I mean, so the obviously we had, you know, we, we want to talk about the WCW cruiserweights. But I, I guess thinking about it before even WCW, the first big company in America to bring the cruiserweights in would have been ECW with those Rey Mysterio and Psychosis matches, which... That would have been happening before you broke into the industry, Mike? Well, I'm trying to think. So my debut is May 20th, 1994. And if I remember, the first Ray and Psychosis match that hits ECW TV happens in 1995. Okay. Um, so when I first got a VHS tape of that match happening, I was living in Pittsburgh. It was during my university time. And that was a groundbreaking moment. So even though when Worlds Collide had been carried by U.S. pay-per-view carriers, and there had been a little bit of that making its way in, the first Rey Mysterio psychosis match on ECW television feels groundbreaking. That is the start of the same kind of change that if, and I don't know, I, I, I'm not old enough to have seen it, but when Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid first wrestle each other, I have to imagine it was similar in the way it impacted the audience that observed that, that you could feel the paradigm shift happening as you watch the two of them wrestle. And that's definitely true. And their, their tenure in ECW is sporadic. They only have those three singles matches. And then, and you're going to see this trend repeat in a moment here as we start to talk about WCW. Once Conan sort of gets enough of a foothold there, uh, he keeps his foot lodged in the door and starts waving his friends in. And that's how Juventud Guerrera ends up in ECW. There's an appearance by La Parca back then. And this exact same pattern repeats itself only a year or two later as Conan arrives in WCW and, again, gets his foot in the door and just starts waving in his friends. And Absolutely. I mean, what, what you said about the, the maneuvers, the, the story of the, those matches, you know, they, they were things that, Western or American fans hadn't seen before much, you know, as you say, much like the, the Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid matches. And, and going back to my own childhood, when Tiger Mask wrestled in the UK as Sammy Lee, and he would be mm. breaking out moves, much like when Owen Hart came over here, breaking out moves that we had never seen before and were, were in, in awe of. Basically, the, 
the, the potted history, I guess, is that you know these guys did phenomenally well in in ECW and WCW. Therefore, wanted to bring that in under their uh, under their banner, much as you know for some some of the pay per views we've looked at in the past, where it is a it is almost an ECW show in disguise on the, on a WCW banner. And was I think was was Rey Mysterio one of the he was one of the first uh, luchadors to enter WCW, wasn't he? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Right after Conan and, you know, Conan's style is strangely Americanized. Um, he yeah. does do a bit of lucha when he shows up in WCW, but I get the feeling that he had that weird experience where the idea of Max Moon is incubating at WWF over and over again. It's a character that they've kind of designed. They're hoping that Conan is going to play it. They want a more muscled up version of Tiger Mask. You know, they tried that with the Blue Blazer character, but this is like the next iteration in the early 90s. And I think Conan goes through a period where he's trying to Americanize his style so that he is ready to become the Max Moon character for WWF. But as, if, if you know your bizarre trivia, right, he becomes frustrated with how long it takes for them to get the character off the ground. And eventually he just walks. He walks out, and that costume ends up being given to whomever it fits, that person being Paul Diamond. Paul Diamond, yeah. And he takes over Max Moon in all the televised appearances. There's no televised episodes where you will see Conan in that Max Moon costume. But you can every once and again find footage of it. In fact, the yeah, WWE Network... YouTube, isn't there? Yeah. That's right, yeah. There are a couple clips where you can see he's really struggling to acclimate to what WWF style at the time is, which is radically different from what's going on in EMLL and AAA. So Conan, when he arrives in WCW... He's already begun part of that transformation. It began four or five years prior during the Max Moon experiment, whereas Rey Mysterio comes in, and he is unfiltered lucha. And he's also just such the trendsetter that every time he arrives in a new market, he comes across like a revelation. That's what you saw in ECW. Before he gets to WCW, he and Psychosis are brought to Japan by Ultimo Dragon, and they're in an exhibition match at the War Super J Cup in 1995. That, too, plays like a revelation. And by the time he gets to that first singles match with Dean Malenko on pay-per-view, Rey Mysterio is just poised to set the world on fire. And he ignites this new craze where all of a sudden it seems like the answer to everyone's problems will be hire more luchadors. Do you think that they... Um, I mean, obviously, they, they, they go in with Rey Mysterio, who is easily the most spectacular, the most gifted of all the luchadors. Is there then, is that putting extra pressure on the other luchadors or on those, the fans to think that, you know, everyone is at this standard and obviously not all of them would be, or? I think it puts pressure on everyone. And once the cruiserweight division bolstered by this brand new flavor that's in the mix, right? They're, the recipe has changed. Now you've got these lucha spices in there and the dish is coming out different than ever before. It's not long after, right? It's about a year or so later when the WWF attempts to replicate this by, you know, in, in a kind of ham-fisted way, also saying, let's just hire some luchadors. And the reality is there's only one Rey Mysterio. Mm. And in my opinion, and I'm curious to hear what you guys think, the optimal version of Rey Mysterio is when Psychosis is the base underneath him making him look spectacular. He is second to none when it comes to enhancing Rey Mysterio. What do you guys think? Yeah, um, you look through the history of wrestling, there, there are not many professional wrestlers 
who don't have one, maybe two or three absolute optimal opponents. Just the, the guys who, uh, for, for lack of a less gooey term, who are their in-ring soulmates, I guess you could say. And that would be a term I'd choose for those two. Uh, and especially considering the fact that we are currently, look, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of early nitros with the watch-alongs that we now do on this podcast. And we're seeing the the, the pre-Rey Mysterio aspects, the things like Mr. JL and Eddie Guerrero, and even to a, to a, to a slight extent, the, the Chris Benoit as well with the Japanese junior style we still very much used at the time. Just, just almost laying the groundwork uh, getting getting the, the 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 WCW audience and the the newfound cable TV audience acclimatized to what was to come because as Mike said when when we got to the Rays versus Deans the the Dean uh, the Rays versus Psychosis it it went up another level yeah and I think yeah there's a really good point that you you make there because I I'm thinking back to um yeah when I when I watched wrestling as a as a kid as a teenager with you know with with pure i guess you could call pure fan eyes and there'd be certain certain people certain wrestlers that you'd think well why why are they around they're boring they don't do anything they just seem to be always on the same level and then as you start to understand the business as you start to enter the business you realize that there are these potentially less spectacular guys who are as as you absolutely put that they are the base of everything they are the the catchers they are the the reliable guys the ones that everyone wants to work with because you know that they'll be able to fit around whatever you whatever you do and i think yeah psychosis obviously never made it to the levels of of ray mysterio internationally internationally on, on a larger scale but yeah what what a what a great base to work your matches around. Yeah, and there's a weird symbiosis, that relationship of flyer to base. And looking at them as the example, Rey Mysterio, in my opinion, never reaches his zenith without psychosis. But when you flip that around, um, psychosis never made it to that very top tier, I think, because of that perception you just described, Dean. People would take a look at psychosis by, by comparison and think, oh man, like I'm putting all my stock in this little guy. Rey Mysterio is where it's at. Yet, if you look at that chunk of time, right after AAA starts to become a phenomenon in Mexico, but before Mysterio's advent, Psychosis could have been that guy. He is the guy on those AAA cards having the insanely creative high-flying matches. It's just that ultimately, he's the setup guy. He ends up being the one who's there to help get Mysterio to the next level. But once his rocket ship takes off, there's just no catching up to Ray. Definitely. Um, so once we get the the initial impact of of uh, of Ray and Psychosis, as we've as we've mentioned, Conan with his influence, the floodgates open. We get all manner of people coming in, um, La Parker, Super Calo, and obviously Silver King, who inspired this this whole um this whole discussion and i mean as as someone who was breaking into the the business at this time did what influence mike did this have on on you to see you know guys who weren't necessarily six foot five and 300 pounds getting positions in a in a national wrestling company with with national television 
it's really important, not just in my development, but I think across the independent circuit, the five years from 1993 to 1998, and, and that, that arc begins with the arrival of the one, two, three kid on the national stage mm -hmm. and really climaxes with all those luchadors being in the hottest match every Monday night during the Monday night wars. So it's that time when pro wrestling is as much a part of the popular zeitgeist as it had ever been. You're walking down the street, there's NWO t-shirts and Austin 316 t-shirts everywhere. Everybody knows what they're doing on Monday night. They're watching one of those two shows, or like most of us, flipping back and forth between them based on who's on your screen at that moment. <laughs> and to have guys the size of a Juventud Guerrera and a Rey Mysterio, or even just, you know, b bumping up in weight but not necessarily height, you know, both Silver King and El Dandy are not giant guys. They're not particularly tall. And Psychosis looks tall when he stands next to Rey Mysterio. Yeah. But if you see him without Rey as a point of comparison, Psychosis isn't a giant either. They're all dwarfed by Conan. When you see them all in a group shot, Conan dwarves them all. But this sea change then also starts to impact what audiences will accept. And opportunities that were previously never open to someone my shape or size, and this is true of a whole generation of independent performers, suddenly those doors are opening. Yeah, because I mean, you know, I'm thinking like modern day. You, you know, when when you go down to, the, you've had a few guest slots at the WWE Performance Center, haven't you? And mm -hmm. um, you must see people there who would never have been given a look in a previous generation. To be sure. And that that in itself, you know, is a marker of the influence that the luchadors or the cruiserweights from WCW had on the wrestling business as a whole. You know, you, there's so many people who uh, who 25 years ago wouldn't have got a, a look in in America. It makes you wonder, you know, how much how much talent in the you know in the 70s and 80s was untapped. Yes, and you know, looking at what pop culture was, and of course I'm looking at it from a uniquely American perspective here, but you have two things that are kind of happening that inform the nationalization of wrestling. So throughout the 70s, at least here in the States, kung fu movies become a huge phenomenon, martial arts. And this is spearheaded by Bruce Lee, who by all standards is a small individual in the world if he was in the world of professional wrestling. And then the flip side is that bodybuilding phenomenon that comes out of the California scene and starts to just inform everything. And that, of course, is what Vince McMahon is a fan of. Mm. When he nationalizes in the mid-'80s, his vision of wrestlers should be bodybuilders takes over. And for the next 10 years, right, really until Rey Mysterio walks out on that pay-per-view and they're playing that amazing entrance theme that sounds like God has arrived at the arena <laughs> and goes out there to, to face Dean Malenko, there isn't the counterpoint. There isn't, like, the Bruce Lee counterpoint to the bodybuilder mentality of these small, fast, capable fighters. And Mysterio kind of signals that coming, and then we just get this wonderful wave of outrageously colorful characters on WCW. And, you know, as we mentioned, right, WWF attempts to replicate this, but bringing in for a Royal Rumble appearance El Canek, Pero Aguayo, and Cibernetico is not the right response to Rey Mysterio, Psychosis, La Parca, Silver King, etc. Sure, totally, totally different different types of wrestler but right. i mean i i always remember that you know this this time was uh was when i was a i was a university student myself and i would get tapes of of nitro sent to me and 
my my housemates weren't really wrestling fans, but the two things at the time that they would kind of stop and watch were Hulk Hogan has turned heel. Oh my God, what's happening? And this really spectacular tiny masked guy with all the weird flippy moves that I've never seen before. And that you know the that was the that was the intrigue, the the appeal of um, of Rey Mysterio. Yeah, and what a dovetail it was to have. Uh, and I, I remember the last time we had Mr. Quackenbush on the show with us, we covered a pay-per-view. We did Halloween Havoc 96. And we talked at length about just how sweet a time this was for WCW. And to have the, the, the hot heavyweight scene and such a such an influx of of just wildly different, mesmerizing talent, both, as you, as you guys said, both in what they're doing in the ring and just their general look. Uh, yeah, there was. It's it's not even up for debate. There was no sweeter time for the company, was there? And this was the point where Eric Bischoff, in charge of this, who's overseeing the vision for Nitro, started to puff his chest out a little bit, wasn't it? Boy, you're right about that. And I think they didn't realize entirely why they had lightning in the bottle. Mm. You know, sometimes you capture that and you attribute it to the wrong thing, and that starts to become the case. I think. I would make the argument as as the next two, two and a half years go on, this idea that we need to start unmasking the key luchadors so that they become more relatable to the audience uh, is a mistaken notion, mm. much like the very tone-deaf response from WWF of, like, let's bring in these, who are the top six Mexican wrestlers? Put them on the Royal Rumble. That's how we're going to counter this Rey Mysterio phenomenon. You know, they were kind of tone-deaf reactions to what's going on, and it's sometimes not until you have the benefit of hindsight that you realize... This is why that worked, and you kind of dismantled it. Yeah, it, the, 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 the WWE decision with, with the Mexican influx, it was very much a decision It struck me as one that, that was made purely in the boardroom. It made sense in the boardroom, and it came out to the wrestling ring, and it didn't translate, did it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the issue l- later on, as things started to come away, as you touched upon with the, with the insistence on unmasking so many luchadors, and another f- aspect of it for me that... that was a mistake. I think we touched upon it, Dean, during the Finn Martin episode, Bash at the Beach 97, uh, almost indirectly because the opening match was uh, Ernest Miller, Glacier, Mortis and Wrath. And we talked about how just on that one night or maybe a couple of other moments, this whole idea of having this group, this this entourage of of Mortal Kombat-inspired characters uh, was working with with the right um, in-ring guidance, etc., etc. But it also became apparent that, that, that the, the plan was to keep them within themselves. And God knows how long Eric Bischoff was going to have those Mortal Kombat-style characters only fight each other. And that seemed to be the problem with the Luchadors, was that Bischoff was building sub-rosters. In his eyes, the, the early success of the Luchadors was that they were... A, a little subcategory on his show, headlined by the same guys. We know with the benefit of hindsight, he he refused to uh, rotate those t- those guys on top. Uh, and in, and in from his point of view, it was the Luchadors over here. It was the cartoon character, more combat inspired guys over here. He's probably got the a little category in his mind for the the, the guys who had a, a really good immediate shot at that point in time at making the next step up. The the Benoits, the Booker T's, the Ravens over here. You, you could argue that the Flock was a subcategory to itself and everyone they feuded with. Uh, and 
when you think about it, one of the best things about wrestling storylines is when worlds collide. Imagine how much intrigue there would have been to see more interactions between these various subjects, but we didn't really get that, did we? No, and, you know, I think you're exactly right there, Liam. I think the idea of those sub-rosters really informs, and, and sometimes they weren't given much time to develop. I'm sure we all remember there's about three weeks when the women's cruiserweight title is a thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it just isn't. Right. Like you could see them kind of trying that out as if they were imagining this is a three ring circus of some sort. Right. And here's the animal act and here's the high wire act. But like you said, the interest is when worlds collide. The unique challenge it presents when you mix luchadors with wrestlers from any other style. And those who have trained uh, to be a professional wrestler or specifically in the lucha style understand converting to lucha or converting lucha to other styles is exceptionally difficult because one set of styles are all left-handed, and then yeah. you've got lucha, which is right-handed. And if you've trained and spent thousands of hours or thousands of matches getting good at doing everything on one side, just that simple conversion to the other side feels very alien. And it gave rise to this somewhat ignorant point of view in the 90s after the advent of Rey Mysterio that lucha is, and I'm making air quotes that you can't see, <laughs> wrong. Lucha is done wrong. It's on the wrong side. The moves are wrong. The structure is wrong. It doesn't make sense. And I think the people that really wanted that idea to permeate wrestling, which was everywhere in the 90s after Rey Mysterio came out, were people that were worried for their job security. And it's a very interesting point you make there because I remember, again, in the, in the mid-90s before ECW before WCW, I saw a few um, shows of AAA on Galavision, which was obviously all Spanish commentary language. There's no internet at the time, and we, you know, me and my friend would watch a couple of these, and we didn't understand what was happening because obviously you've got the the different rules, you've got the the lack of tags, the the different pinfalls and the captain's fall and all this kind of thing. And, and obviously none of that's explained because it's all in Spanish. And we kind of, after a couple of attempts, switched off because we didn't quite understand what was going on. Here in WCW, you've got the advantage of, of the commentators and you've got the, the wonderfully knowledgeable Mike Tenay who's able, who knows all of this and is able to, to transmit that. And you can, you can overcome that barrier. But I think, yeah, we've, we've noticed a couple of times on, on pay-per-views where Mike Tenay is trying to explain something cultural, something different, that he's almost getting laughed at by the other commentators. Yeah, he encounters drunk Bobby Heenan a lot of the time, doesn't he? Mm. <laughs> That's always that wall Mike Tenay would run into, where Bobby Heenan would often try... And we all are well aware of Bobby Heenan's amazing wit and sense of humour and we, we've all laughed that lad at some of his, his bits on commentary but that was always oil and water wasn't it, he tried to add that funny side and it, it came across like he didn't really understand the importance of Mike Tanay's job at this stage but on a similar note I also want to give a quick doff for the cap to, we've already had one Sean Walkman reference uh, I'll throw Chris Jericho in there as well because there were a few guys, Dean Malenko um, and even Eddie Guerrero, when he moved back to the Cruiserweight division in 1997, there were a lot of people who did so much good work for that division to try and serve as almost a bridge, a halfway house, uh, with, with that little extra Americanization, with a bit more 
experience in in the personal in primary department to try and bridge that gap and as a result uh, things were a lot better on tv around 97 98 even a little bit of 1999 even though the concept was starting to fall apart for the very reasons we've just all discussed yeah but you yeah we talk about when worlds collide and you know one of the matches that that we really found intriguing when we've done our nitro watch alongs was um eddie guerrero and sergeant craig Pittman because oh, that was oh, man. Two completely different styles and we were kind of couldn't take watched... our eyes off of it yeah, we were watching it initially, like, you know, from behind the sofa for, through our fingers, thinking, what's this going to be like? And it turned into a really good, intri- you know, very short TV match, but a really solid match. And I think the next episode of Nitro that we'll be watching along, um, there's a match between Sting and Dean Malenko, which oh, yes. I'm really intrigued by because it seems an odd pairing. But knowing the caliber of both of them, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to be good. And that's where the intrigue lies. It goes back to the point Mike was making earlier on. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I didn't know there was a Dean Malenko Sting singles match. I'm really intrigued by that as a notion. Are you going to be watching along with us? <laughs> we'll, I think we'll I may have back. to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a handful of those guys, you know, they do have that experience. Chris Jericho had done time in EMLL, right? He has a somewhat noteworthy feud with Negro Casas when he's down there. Uh, Benoit's wild Pegasus loses his mask to one of the Vianos when he's in Mexico. So some of them speak just enough of that different language that they're able to help bring out the best, whereas there are definitely those where, because they're unwilling to translate it, or they're just not going to do it, or they're possessed of that, that bizarre movement that's happening, right? Lucha is wrong. And just to give you an insight of what the effect was on the independent circuit, I can remember being in a dressing room in the Pittsburgh, Ohio region, where the promoter said, this is at the height of the cruiserweight division on WCW, I don't want any of that Lucka Libra on my show. Um, Lucka Libra. <laughs> it was an unbelievably ignorant stance. And yet, the reason that it caught on was a lot, a lot like what the phenomenon would be if all you had ever heard for your entire life was top 40 pop music, and you walked into a club where they were playing jazz for the first time. There's no way your ears wouldn't perk up. And to me, that's what it felt like seeing the luchadors. And each of them brought their own unique flavor. What Silver King was really good at was different from what, you know, the, the Viano brothers were very good at, was different from what Super Colo was good at. And they just brought such color and variety. And I think that's what helped c- catch fire. Yeah, and Silver King, you know, being another one of those great bases that... that... He was always around. He was always in those matches because he was a great person for the other, the the other luchadors to work around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my very favorites, and and I think it was the first that I appreciated how good Silver King was. Is a trios match that happened at the end of 1997 on Nitro, and it follows. It's the following week after my favorite Monday Nitro tag match. So. The week prior, Mysterio and Juventud are against La Parca and Psychosis, and they have this hot little barn burner where, as much as Mike Tenay is trying to talk over Larry's claims about the New World odor, uh, these guys just go out there and light it up. And I remember looking with very intrigued eyes at how that played. They won in the quarter-hour Nielsen rating battles when that was still a thing we cared about during the Monday Night Wars. The cruiserweight tag match killed it. 
and they brought it back the next week as a trios match by adding Hector Garza to the Technicos and Silver King on the Rudos side. The whole match, six to seven minutes tops, but it is made by Silver King. He is the glue holding that match together and helping make it even more awesome. Have either of you guys seen the match I'm talking about? No, but I'm going to have to go and watch it, I yeah. think. I can't say with confidence that I can recall that one. There's a chance I may have come across it along my chronological lookbacks, courtesy of things like the network, which is just so good for nostalgic trips like this. But the one that always sticks out to me when it comes to Silver King was, uh, I, th- I think the fact that it's pay-per-view helped, but the sold-out 1998, mm. I want to say the yes. opener, the eight-man, which is more famously remembered for La Parker just absolutely stealing the show and <laughs> leading to a moment we'll get into, I'm sure, shortly about uh, WCW not taking these opportunities when guys are hot. But on the underneath of this shiny moment for La Parker belting everyone around him with a steel chair, uh, Silver King very much did th- exactly what you just described there. He was the glue. And especially when we have you on the show, Mike, we always love to talk about bricks and mortar. It comes out, and, and, and that is another great example of it. Mm-hmm. And in that particular eight-man tag, which I knew we were going to have to talk about at some point because yes. it's such a spectacle, Silver King and L Dandy are these veteran players out there with some of the rookiest dudes they've got. Lismark Jr. is green as grass, and he's out there opening up a pay-per-view during the hottest period of WCW. And Chavo Guerrero Jr. is so unbelievably young, and they've got to hold it all together with all these different combustible elements, and they just brought the fireworks. Such a good memory, that man. And that, that pay-per-view in general was really good. This was when it was very, very hot. But yeah, the La Parker thing is a, a great example of where things started to go wrong. Because, you know, we, we talked about some of the luchadors being a bit more on the stocky side. And if you're going to be that narrow-minded about size mattering, you'd think that would work in someone like La Parker's benefit. He looks... As you as you described uh, Jushin Thunder Liger in that first episode you joined us for, he looks like a complete superhero with the outfit. He's got this 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 kooky, charming charisma about him with the strut and and the air guitar on the chair, and you know you, you so, something like that where he's just like attacked everyone after the match, and then he's at his own teammates as well. The place is going crazy. It, it's it's something for them to work with and. Lo and behold, he's back to doing the same thing every week for the rest of his WCW contract. We mentioned the the Rey Mysterio situation. Wanting worlds collide. Well, you know, he he had that infamous moment. And, and, and this wasn't a bad thing, in my opinion. The, the lawn dart moment uh, when the NWO invaded and Kevin Nash threw him up against the side of the trailer. That was a great moment, but not only was it just a, a sick looking moment and really put over the threat of the Hill faction, but just as that whole worlds collide thing, the fact that they were attacking, not just uh, Sting and Luger and the horsemen they were attacking the Luge stores as well. There was a little bit of a, of a appetizer of that. And the closest we got to having a similar thing to that on, on the, in a major program you could say was uh uncensored 99 they did the hair versus mask match oh no that would have been um super Bowl was hair versus mask and then they had a singles match well, was it uncensored wasn't it ray versus nash and 
no, they, they they basically ran this program to get the mask off of him and saw a little bit more uh, juice to get out of it. So ran the singles thing the next month. And then lo and behold, after that, he was back where he was for the rest of his career, which which is a shame because there was so much more to be had, uh, especially because they, they, they tested the wall with the whole giant killer thing and it got over. But they yeah. just wanted it to, to begin and end with Kevin Nash. And I think there were some people involved at WCW that they were not good at understanding or writing for characters that had mystique about them. Mm. There was a mystique to La Parca. Um, but, and it might have been Vince Russo, or it might have been somebody else, they would look at La Parca and just think, oh, this guy is Skeletor from Masters of the Universe. That's what I see here, and that's all I can write. And similarly, I think they thought, they looked at mask guys like Ray and Hoovy, who were, I believe, the first two of the luchadors to lose their masks. And they just think, okay, well, there's something about them, but we don't quite get it. But you know what we do understand is how to market, you know, these characters when they, when we can see their faces. But it's a lot like the Spider-Man phenomenon. Um, I can put myself into the fantasy of Spider-Man when he is masked, because when he's covered like that, I could be Spider-Man. Yeah. But the moment he takes his mask off, right, like uh, I, I can't be Spider-Man anymore. That guy is Spider-Man. What was great about Rey Mysterio, what's great about La Parca, Jushin Liger, or these other characters that cultivate a certain mystique, it adds a level to your imagination that is taken away the moment the person underneath is revealed. And WCW demonstrated time and time again, they did not have an understanding of that. Yeah, and you know, the, one of the one thing I always I always tell um, people if I'm doing like you know character or promo seminars at training schools, um, haven't made it up to the WW Performance Center just yet, but um, is that a babyface is someone that the fans want to be. And so that is why, you know, the baby face will, should come out wearing their T-shirt because the fans can buy the T-shirt and then they're wearing the same shirt that their rest, their favorite wrestler is wearing. Or they can chant along with a catchphrase or they can play their ent the wrestler's entrance music at home or whatever it might be. And, yeah, you could buy, you know, if you could buy a, a, a lucha mask, which obviously is one of the big in, in Mexico lucha shows, they are the, the big merchandise sellers if you can buy a Rey Mysterio mask you can feel that little bit more like Rey Mysterio I think the other major mistake specifically with Rey Mysterio was you know when we say that he was a baby face when he took that mask off he was literally a baby face he you know facially looked so young that it to me it actually took away a lot of his credibility Mm -hmm. Well, Bischoff has said many times since that he honestly felt that Mysterio, with his baby face, was handsome and thus marketable, which is a fair argument to, to take if you actually market them. And they, WCW didn't really do that. Uh, the Filthy Animals uh, faction was kind of just spinning wheels, really, for a lot of these guys. Uh, and so when, when you say, oh, yeah, he's more marketable without the mask, we'll, we'll do something with him then in, in, in that vein. Yeah. And they absolutely did not. Regards to your point about baby faces, I thought, do, do you seriously mean to say that constantly being made to look the fool and attacking people on social media isn't good baby face behavior? Possibly. You know. oh, who the fool? 
Yeah. Had to, sorry. Um, I have learned something here today. Ah. If only other people would. I'm not going to mention any names. <laughs> um, the other thing as well, just got to mention when we're talking about WCW, Latino World Order. <laughs> what, where where do you stand on the Latino World Order? Love it or hate it? I'm not a fan of that. I know a lot of people are into it, and they thought that was a, a great way to highlight the luchadors, but I thought it only kind of emphasized, or it was an effort to make them seem more generic. Um, mm. it, they are like a bad cover band of this other thing that's really hot, and uh, it sort of ignores all their individual personalities. So, so to me, the LWO was like McDonald's for dinner. Yeah, mm. It's the sort of thing where I, I'm, I'll be the first to I got a massive kick out of it. I had an LWO t-shirt when I was younger. <laughs> I thought it was cool. I like, you, you, you'll find out towards the end of this episode, I, I like the theme music and things like that. But like when you have a McDonald's, you kind of enjoy it for five minutes. You know in the long run it's no good for you and it's no good for the for, for the bigger picture. And that was definitely the case there. there there's guilty pleasures to be had in some of the things we're happy to criticise. That's, that's just the way it is. But yeah, that, that is absolutely spot on. It, it didn't really help things, did it? No. No, and I don't think it helps when they have made consistent moves over time, which would seem to demonstrate a lack of creativity. The name Lex Luger is derived from Lex Luthor, right? That's how you made a villain. You chose Superman's arch nemesis and derived a name from that. Lex Luthor becomes Lex Luger. When they're trying to come up with a name right, for their new big scary monster heel, they take half of Darth Vader and they make Big Van Vader. Um, when you have these things which are derivative, and LWO was derivative, and they're flashing a sign of what it's derivative of because it's their top heel group. It smacks of a lack of creativity, and that makes you feel like you're watching a second-rate show. Yeah, bootleg culture, isn't it? It's yeah, mm -hmm. and and pushed them back down or kept them down on on the on the mid card. So uh, yeah, one one final thing I, I want to look at because I'm very much aware, Mike, that you're on a tight schedule. Um, obviously, once the once the luchadors started to to be phased out and started to leave, like I mean. I, I, um, Silver King had left by 2000, for example. Just at the death of WCW, we get this new breed of American cruiserweights like um, Kid Romeo, A Air Paris, and of course AJ Styles. And uh, how, you know, how how much of of a, an influence on those guys, those you know, guys who were making names on the independent scene? How much of an influence were the Luchadors and what had preceded them? How much of an influence was that on those new breed of American high flyers? The influence is pretty stark. And what's interesting about the group of guys you just mentioned, there are eight guys that are meant to report to Atlanta, Georgia, to begin with WCW all at the same time. And I was one of the eight that was offered this by WCW. I would have had to move from my home in Pennsylvania to Georgia, but I, alongside... Reckless Youth, Jet Jaguar, Air Paris, Romeo Styles, all those guys. We were all meant to be a giant infusion into the cruiserweight division all at once. And something that could be said of all of us was that had permeated our styles. You could, If you were ignoring the influence of the Lucha style at the time, you were flirting with obsolescence on the independent circuit. Um, but as it turns out, neither Tom nor I wanted to relocate to Atlanta, Georgia. And as at least it relates to Jet Jaguar, Air Paris, and maybe one or two others in that same group, 
you may recall, they are released less than 30 days after they started with the company. So in hindsight, it might have been a good move that I didn't relocate to Atlanta, Georgia. Nevertheless, whenever I hear that particular era of WCW intoned, I can't help but wonder, what if? <laughs> uh, Mike, you aren't the only one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Dean, Dean always ribs me for managing. It doesn't matter if we're watching a 1992 pay-per-view paying tribute to something like those days. It's got absolutely nothing to do with it. I always somehow manage to find a way to tie things into those last four to six months and the what-ifs and that. I always manage to do that. But one thing on that subject I do want to bring up is we, 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 we talk about the influence of the the legitimate luchadors on the americans working that style towards the end but one guy was there an actual luchador who uh, we mentioned him earlier when he was very very inexperienced and wet behind the ears but chavo guerrero jr was a guy who after doing various different things with mixed results over three years in wcw and the last of those things was the misfits in action another great idea from vince russo um towards the end when they know the company's going to be sold and they're just getting down to brass tacks just do a nice simple basic digestible tv show while we sort out the fate of this company and try and get in in, in safe hands uh and chavo guerrero was made cruiserweight champion and he oversaw this era of the young dragons free count all these guys and that is one of the things i have the fondest memories of when i do uh convince myself that late 2000 to 2001 wcw was much better and a sign that they would have been great if they continued uh and so, some of the matches he was having were the one that always stands out to me when we covered this very recently super Bowl revenge uh, he had the title match with Rey Mysterio. We've sung his praises all episode, but on that night, he he had one of his biggest off nights that I can remember, Rey Mysterio. And Chavo took control, carried him through it, and the end result was one of the better matches you've seen. Almost a, a, a smaller scale version of Brett versus Bulldog at SummerSlam 92, where one guy was doing all the driving. Uh, and a, a smaller memory. This is, this was just because I was I was rewatching some old nitros from those dying embers uh, very recently. Is there was a this was just before Shane Helms's first challenge of Chava Gray. This would be at Sin. He was unsuccessful, but then they start then they did the process where he got a title shot, lost it, then started to sh to shed his skin of the factions, the teams always being associated with the same matches with the Young Dragons and became Sugar Shane Helms, his own guy. And that's where the story, yes, a storyline in WCW completed and he won the title agreed. He, Chavo had a match with Shannon Moore and Shane Helms was on commentary and Moore and Helms were very much still tag team partners. Uh, and Chavo Guerrero got on the mic and did some mind games about, oh, well, I'm going to make this a title match out of the goodness of my heart. If I lose this, I'm going to cash in with my rematch at the pay-per-view, and Shane Helms, you're not going to get your title shot. Little things like that, and I was sitting there thinking, hang on, is he is he trying to make these things relevant and important on mid-card WCW? So it wasn't just the in-ring aspect. One of the things that was fun about this era of WCW, and it, it, you know, it starts to curtail right in this era we're discussing now, is you got to watch Chavo Guerrero Jr. grow up as a wrestler yeah. from when he first arrives to that by the time he's cruiserweight champion. It's like a full arc unfolding right before your eyes. Yeah, 
it was really one of the happiest stories for a bittersweet ending for WCW. That was one of my more favourite moments was Chavo and the way he just made everyone around him better. And if we ever got the chance to talk to someone like Shane Helms, who we've spoken to on Twitter about various things, really nice guy by all accounts, uh, I'm sure he'd agree that, that the influence of Chavo late on to those guys uh, was very important. And we, we all wish we could have seen what would have happened if they did carry on. And of course, if you're curious, they can always look at the fan fiction that uh, <sighs> that is available on our website because www.podbean.com. Um, we're running out of time, so it's about time to wrap up. Just before we go, I just want to say something I did want mean to say at the beginning of the episode. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Adrian McCallum, aka Lionheart, one of the absolute stalwarts of the British wrestling industry, who tragically lost just recently at the age of 36 um didn't get the opportunity to work with him all that often because we were based on the uh, opposite ends of the uk but whenever we did he was always such a nice guy we'd have a good chat about the scenes in our respective areas and the the outpouring of and the the support from the british wrestling community and the worldwide wrestling community has been phenomenal and i just want to say to anyone listening out there if you are in a bad way if you're struggling that support that you've seen for everyone following Lionheart's passing that support is out there for everyone um so please you know reach out and there are people who can help you there are people who will help you make things better because the answer isn't to go away the answer is to get help so please reach out get help there's always someone out there for you that's my uh, little speech over. Mike Quackenbush, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for making the time. We really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for letting me chat about one of my very favorite eras in all of wrestling. And it's always a pleasure when I get to team up with the two of you. Oh, let, let's do Quackmas again next year. <laughs> Whenever <laughs> it comes around just once a year. We know we know you're super busy, Mike, and we know you've got so many things going on, which is brilliant to see. But whenever you get a chance and a little a little particular aspect of WCW, you get the, the hankering to discuss you, let us know. We'll be happy to have you on any time you like. The door is open. Ah, well, I'll take you up on that offer. Thank you both. Thank you very much, Mike. Take care. And... Uh... Just if people want to get hold of you or on social media, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter as Mike Quackenbush, one big word, and it is spelled the way that you think, unless you think my last name is spelled Quakenbush. <laughs> and I recently caved to peer pressure and started an Instagram where I'm MQ underscore thousand holds thousand holds t-h-o-u-s-a-n-d as opposed to the numericals so mq thousand holds over there a, a better slice of my oblique sense of humor awaits you over on instagram and on youtube please check out my new project till we make it my podcast for fellow professional wrestlers kayfabe 2.0 is most likely coming to an end in the next four weeks as season three wraps up so Kayfabe 2.0 awaits you at least for a little longer, although something tells me it will live in the ether forever. As everything does online, as uh, as mm -hmm. Boris Johnson is finding out in, over <laughs> here in, the, in the UK. Right. Well, thank you ever so much for listening and downloading this. Please give us a follow on Twitter at BecauseWCW or Facebook.com forward slash BecauseWCW on behalf of Liam Hatt. This is a Twisted Genius saying thanks for listening, and I'll see you ringside.